The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. And as we begin the message this morning, I want us to think about what kind of church do we want Berean Baptist to be? It's a good thought for the first Sunday of the year as we look forward to serving him this year. What kind of church does the Lord want us to be and what kind of church do we want to be? And there are a lot of answers to that question. Some of you say might say, well, we would like to be the kind of church that has much shorter sermons on Sunday. And uh, that probably won't happen this year. Um, there are there are answers, d- different questions, that different answers to to this question. Uh, if we were going to talk about a denominational marker, what kind of church would we want to be? Well, we don't really consider ourselves to be a denominational church, but I would say that we want to be a Baptist church. And you may say, well, why do we want to be a Baptist church? And we do because I know that the Baptist church is apostolic. I know that there have been people like Baptist since the Lord started his church and received the doctrines from Christ and the apostles. I know that that claim is true historically. I know it's true theologically. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would never prevail against his church. And so he began a church that would survive the worst of persecutions, that it would never fail, and it's a church that never needed to be reformed. Secondly, I might emphasize the first part of our name, and that is that we want to be Bereans. Our name is taken from Acts 17, verses 10 and 11, and in that, in those verses there's description of a church at Berea that the Apostle Paul visited, And there it says that they received the word of God with readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily. So they studied to see that whoever spoke to them, they wanted to be sure that person was guided and speaking by the scriptures. I want to be that kind of church. I want to be a church that holds up the word of God, that holds it in the highest esteem, that preaches it in its entirety, And I want to be a church that stays true to the doctrines of the faith, that reads and studies and preaches those doctrines faithfully. And I believe that we do. And so, reverently, I think I can say we are proud to be Bereans. And then I might also say the kind of church that we want to be is a blessed church. And here I emphasize that last part. I emphasize the word church because we want to be a church that meets the New, Def- New Testament definition of a church, and be one that, when the Lord examines it, He finds no complaint. And although there are no churches that are perfect, we, we don't want any errors that are glaring and that obscure the perfections of Christ. We want Christ to shine forth in our church, and we want to receive His commendations and thus His blessings. We want to be a church that because of our faithfulness, the Lord will give us more to do. And the Lord would hold us up and say, this is what I want my church to be. Now, if we take those three important characteristics together, our history, our doctrine, and our faithfulness, we align 
with the church at Philadelphia. This is the standout church among the seven churches. And this is the church that was intended, uh, is intended to, to be the church that all churches should desire to be. This is our example that we look to. Now let's read the Lord's letter to Philadelphia again. And we continue our discussion of the Lord's commendations of this blessed church. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And to the angel, again that is the pastor of the church, to the angel, the pastor of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before my, thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now as a reminder, for those of you that have been with us in our study, and as new information for anyone who hasn't been here for it all, uh, chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation are letters that the Lord sent to historical first century churches. There are many sections of Revelation that we can say are are metaphorical, uh, that they are not literal things that we look to and say this actually happened or this actually exists, but they may be indicators or markers or signs of something else. But these first two chapters in Revelation, although they contain many metaphors, they are not metaphorical. These churches are historical, they were actual, they were seven churches in seven cities that received letters from the Lord. And these churches are also indicative of the spiritual condition of churches that exist in all ages. These, are, these were functioning churches, but they weren't all functioning in the way that they should. In fact, of the seven churches, the Lord commends only two of them. The rest of them, the other five, had serious issues that needed to be addressed. But Philadelphia, this is the good church, this is the best of the seven, although Smyrna was a very good church. I think this is the one that we really want to take our time to study and see what did they do and what kind of church were they and why do we want to be like them. And throughout 21 centuries now of church history, this is the one that churches, the one of the seven that churches have desired to be like. That is, true churches, good churches. Now some in each of these churches and throughout the ages, have had serious problems. They have existed in all times since the time of Christ, and there have been persecutions, and there have been departures from the faith. There have been many challenges. Some churches did fairly well. Most churches have not done very well at all. But in all of the centuries since the time 
that these letters were written, there have been some churches that were good, solid churches. That there were churches that held to the faith, they, they uh, were the seeds that planted other good churches, other faithful churches, and because of them, this promise that Christ made that His church will never fail has been true. That it's remained true through all of these centuries because there are some churches that are Philadelphia churches. And the Lord has preserved His church through them. Our church is now nearing 50 years of continuous service to the Lord. 50 years ago, if you lived in Roner Park, this was all just a cornfield. And this building was constructed, not this one, but the one on the other side, was constructed to hold just a very small congregation of people, a congregation of faithful believers. Now you take that 50 years and you compare that to the 21 centuries of church history, and that's not very long. So we want to look at what do we want to be in this 21st century. We want to be the church that's known to be like that first century church of Philadelphia. I think of the church of Charles Spurgeon, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, that is a Baptist congregation that has a history now of 350 years. In the 18th century, John Gill came to the pulpit of that church, and he's one of the greatest scholars in, in, in history, certainly the greatest among Bible, Baptist Bible scholars. And the successors of John Gill in that church were very good men. Charles Spurgeon uh, was called to pastor that church when he was only 17 years old. And then he became the most prolific preacher in all the history of Christianity. There are more sermons of Charles Spurgeon in print than of any other preacher. Far more. Today, Dr. Peter Masters is the pastor of that church. And it continues this history of excellence as it stands for the faith that was given to the saints of God in the first century. And so we could call that church a Philadelphia church. And that's what I hope for Berean Baptist. That if the Lord should delay his return, I hope that in 350 years that people will examine uh, the history of Berean Baptist Church and they will say that is a faithful church, that we are a Philadelphia church and they would choose to model their church after ours. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so we come back to this study of Philadelphia to see more of the Lord's commendations for them, that Jesus, the one who is holy and true, the one who holds the keys to the treasures of heaven, He says, I know your works and you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Many of them had. Many of the churches had. Five of those seven churches in one way or another had failed the Lord. Now our point of emphasis today is how this Philadelphia church did what the Lord wanted them to do and what He promised them because of it. Now we're looking again at the second point of our outline, which is the obedience of the church. Now first, as we discussed last week, this is a church that persevered in the Word. They kept the Word. Kept in verses 8 and 10 comes from a Greek word that means they guarded. That they guarded Christ. Words And when you see that, the words of Christ, when he talks about his word, what he means is the doctrines of the faith. And this is a church that would not let anyone infiltrate the church with any heresies. 
They faithfully obeyed the Word and they kept on in the Word regardless of what ungodly churches did. They wouldn't compromise the truth in order to receive acceptance from the world. Now secondly, we see how they also profess Christ's name. Now the name of Christ is one of our metaphors. That's a metaphor for everything that Christ is. His name stands for His person. It stands for His character. It stands for His qualities and His righteousness. It's His doctrine. It's everything that Christ taught. And they exalted the name of Christ above all other names. And that was very controversial in a society that claimed deity for the Caesars. Christians, true Christians, would say only Christ is Lord. While there were others that wanted to curry favor with the government and they sought those temporal favors rather than heavenly blessings. And so they would say also that Caesar is Lord. The Greeks and living under Roman rule, and Romans, of course, had long since gone over to Caesar and made him one of their gods, but the church at Philadelphia did not. For all the ease and the comfort that would bring if they would do it, they did not. Now, Christians in Pergamos and Christians in Thyatira and Sardis, they were willing to give in to the culture And so to save their skins, they would say, Caesar is Lord. Now, I don't think they believed it. They couldn't be Christians if they believed that there is another Lord beside Christ. But they were afraid not to say it. They were afraid not to say that Caesar is Lord. Now, today, we're not confronted with an issue of will we as Christians or will we not say that Caesar is Lord, but we are certainly confronted with the problem of giving in to what the world says and going along with the world says, and by that we're saying the world is Lord, not Christ. And so that is a problem for us. And if we have given in to the world and say the world is to lead us and not Christ, then we're guilty of giving up on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, There were some who were weak in the faith, and because of their compromises, they were of no use to the Lord. And so he called on those churches to repent or face the terrible consequences of his rejection. But as we read the letter to Philadelphia, there are no warnings like that. They took the ridicule, and they took the beatings, they even took the martyrdom if necessary, and they went to their graves, pointing their fingers to the sky, saying, only Jesus is Lord. And because of that, he made them promises. Faithfulness and courage earn rewards in God's kingdom. He doesn't forget the labor of love. This is what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed towards his name. So promises were made. God doesn't forget the labor of love. He doesn't forget His promises. So what did He say that He would do for them? We have His promises here in this text. First, He promised protection. In verse number 10, they kept the word of Christ patience. And patience is the, is the same word as endurance. It's the same word as perseverance. So it means that they followed the Lord in his example of how he patiently waited on the reward that he would receive. Again, we find in the Word of God, it tells us that he uh, 
uh, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he despised the shame of that ignominious death of the cross. And he regarded the death of a criminal as not something too great that he would go through when he should, of course, been counted as glorious. But he went through that because he looked forward to the future reward. And Hebrews says that we should consider how that Christ endured that contradiction of sinners against himself, against his character, and that that is our incentive to patiently run the race that's set before us and not to be weary and faint because of it. Well, for a while, Jesus was popular. That didn't last very long. When he raised the ire of religious leaders by teaching against their hypocrisies, all the good that he did came to naught as far as they were concerned. They never thought that he was good enough, and so they always kept increasing their hatred of him because of what he did and what he taught. In his hometown of Nazareth, he was a prophet without honor. A few years ago, uh, Gary and I stood looking over the cliff where they would have thrown Jesus if it hadn't been for divine protection. And what were they so upset about? Well, they were upset because he'd been in the synagogue just before that, reading from the book of Isaiah, and he indicted the religious leaders for the sins of their fathers. And so he became a hated man. At other times, they tried to stone him. Finally, they were successful in crucifying him, but that was only when it was his time. When he was done, when he was finished with his ministry, he said, okay, it is time. He'd finished his work and he willingly went to the death of the cross. And now what the Lord does in this passage is to take that part of his life, that endurance of, of his life and, the, and enduring the things that were done against him, and he used that as a comparison of how they had stayed true to the cause that they were given. They patiently endured the contradiction of sinners against them. And without buckling, and without giving in, they withstood the cruelty of their oppressors, and they did keep the word of the Lord Christ. The Philadelphia church was only a small church, small in membership, but they held their ground. And because they did, the Lord promised protection. He said that He would keep them from the hour of temptation. Now that phrase, you see it there in our text, the hour of temptation, that's in verse number 10. And that is very important for our understanding of the end times and what the Lord will do for His church in those last days when Jesus comes again. Then secondly, He promised them permanence. In verse 12 he said, or it says, he that, he that overcometh, Jesus says, He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. What does he mean by that? Well, I want you to think of massive pillars that hold up great buildings. I don't know how many of have ever been to Nashville, Tennessee, but in Nashville there is a replica of the Parthenon in Athens, Greece. Now the ancient temple, the Parthenon in Athens, Greece, has been in ruins for many, many centuries, but still there are huge pillars that are standing. In Nashville, they've recreated the building with its massive columns that hold up the roof, 
And the stone pillars of ancient temples like that of Diana in Ephesus were substantially strong because of the great weight that they carried. You may remember the story of Samson and how the end of his life he was blinded by the Philistines and they brought him into the temple of their god Dagon to make fun of him. They blinded him and they brought him in to make fun of him. And as he stood there, he asked that he would be taken to stand between two great pillars that held up that great temple. And then he bowed his head, he humbled himself before God, and he prayed that God would give him strength one more time. And as he stood there, he pushed against those pillars that held up that great temple. And those pillars broke and the temple came crashing down. And the Bible says that Samson killed more in his death than he had in his life. These are the kinds of things that we need in our mind as we read about these massive pillars that Jesus is talking about. And the pillars that are in the temple of God are stronger and more substantial than those in the Parthenon, those in the temple of Diana, those in the temple of Dagon. These are pillars that don't break. These are permanent Now, why does the Lord use this analogy? Is there a purpose here, or is this random? Well, I hope from years of listening to me preach that you wouldn't expect that the Lord would make random statements in His Word. Not when He's dealing, especially not when He's dealing in a place where He speaks timeless truths to His churches. So what what is His reference here? Why does He say this? Well, let's back up just a little bit to the history of Philadelphia. Now, the last time we discussed uh, how geographical features of Sonoma County are much like they were in Philadelphia. Long ago, this area where we live was a center of volcanic activity. That accounts for uh, the rocks you see uh, in our fields and regional parks. I'm talking about the lava rocks that you can find. And, And being Californians, of course, we've also felt seismic activity with our frequent earthquakes. Most of those don't cause damage, but occasionally we do have one that causes serious damage. And geologists tell us that there's pressure mounting on the tectonic plates and the big one is coming. Eventually there's going to be a very big earthquake here and that's inevitable. Well, Philadelphia was like that. It was a place where there was a great deal of seismic activity. And if you if you looked at the... Um, Uh, history of that region where Philadelphia was and the other churches as well earthquakes were a common thing and those those cities were destroyed by earthquakes and had been rebuilt on several occasions so Philadelphia was like this it was a very seismically active area and people were even afraid to live in the city many of them wouldn't live in the city because they were afraid that buildings would fall on them and so the massive stones and the pillars of the buildings uh, those those buildings would fall and it was dangerous. And anyone who decided to stay in the city was constantly doing this, constantly shoring up walls and, and repairing the damage. Now, as Jesus did in each of these letters, he took a characteristic of the city or the region and he attached to that a spiritual meaning. Here, it's the pillars of the buildings that are shaken in earthquakes. Now again, you visit ancient ruins of cities and what's left standing? You'll see pillars. Now the rest of the building has fallen down, but you'll see occasionally, here or there, 
there's a pillar of a building that's standing. Well, the Philadelphians were used to seeing that. A building would collapse in an earthquake, and then after all the dust had settled, there stood a pillar all alone, just a strong pillar. And Jesus' point is to say that those that are faithful to him will be made into pillars that cannot fall. That they will be in a building that can never be destroyed. And that building is the temple of the one true living God. And so they had seen many heathen temples crumble. And though the pillars were strong, they couldn't hold up the building. But in God's temple, it's a temple that can't be destroyed. And I think that we see an analogy here to the original promise that's given to the church, that the church can never fail because Christ promised the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1, and we'll make an application of this text, um, there's a couple of meanings that we can attach to it, but we'll make this We'll attach this meaning. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I want us to take that thought and carry it into the third promise. And that is Christ's promised position. He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. Paul wrote in Galatians that Peter, James, and John were pillars in the church at Jerusalem. They were recognized as a stabilizing influence in the church because they were faithful men. And the teachings that they gave the church were foundational. Philadelphia has been a model of stability for churches in the many centuries afterwards. As I've said, this is the church that we want to be. They're a good, blessed church. And today, we are reading about Philadelphia because they have a position. Their position is here in the Word of God. That because they stood true to God, He remembers them in His Word. And here we are, 20 centuries later, and we still refer to the Philadelphian church as the church that we want to be. Now, we want to be a church that sets an example. We want to be remembered for faithfulness. And perhaps future generations will hear the digital media that we produce, and later on, hopefully, Uh, as we get video out and put that on the internet, that people in the future will be able to to look at what we have produced and they'll read the history of our city and they'll see that um, it's a history much like the city of Philadelphia. People are wicked and against God and they'll see a crumbling society, but they'll also see a church like Philadelphia. They'll see the Berean Baptist Church, that it's still standing for what the Word of God says. Oh, that'd be wonderful to have that position, wouldn't it? Be recognized as an example for future generations. But a better position is the one that we have in heaven. We'll be given a new name, the Scripture says. Probably that means a name of ownership. 
Now, as we give our children our last name to say these children are in our family, so Christ also gives us a new name in which he says, this child is mine, he belongs to me. Now, another way to look at the new name, or to say it, is to say that we are credentialed. That is, that we have a passport that says we're citizens of heaven. And that passport is the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away our sins and makes us fit for admission into the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. This is the city in Revelation 21 that will come down from heaven. We read about it a few minutes ago in our opening exercise. At the last day, the old heavens and the old earth will be burned up and God will bring a new heavens and a new earth. And then there's this miraculous shining city that will descend out of the the heavens and probably it will suspend over the earth and there it will be a gleaming crystal and prism of light that's over the entire world. Now think of the promise that Jesus gives. He says that because you're faithful, you have a place in this city. That you'll have a home there. If you are a part of his church. Now if you've studied eschatology, you know there are many controversies over these matters. The Bible doesn't fully explain all of these things because quite frankly our minds can't comprehend it all. I favor the interpretation that the New Jerusalem is the city of the church. We're called the bride of Christ. Now I want, you, I want us to look at a couple of places in Scripture that give us insight to this and it'll help you to understand why I say that the New Jerusalem is the city of the church. There's, there's this, in Matthew chapter 19, or excuse me, uh, Revelation 19, if you want to turn there, we're going to read a passage here in just a moment. But in this 19th chapter, there is described a long-anticipated event. Jesus alluded to it in Matthew 22 in the parable of a king who invited guests to attend the wedding of his son. And this long-anticipated event is the marriage of the Lamb. This is the marriage feast of the Lord Jesus Christ as he prepares to take his bride. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called under the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Now who is this bride? Who is the one who's going to be the wife of Jesus Christ? Well, in Ephesians 5, Paul said, Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. And he used that to correspond to the way that a husband should love his wife. It is even as Christ loved his church. Now that tells us that the bride referred to in Revelation 19 is the church. It's the church that Christ loved and gave himself for. And then to associate the bride with the new Jerusalem, we go to Revelation 21. That's where we read a little while ago. And we're nearing the end of the Bible here, which is the last revelation that is given. And this is the revelation of God's home where we'll live with Christ. 
In Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You might want to underline that. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The holy city, the New Jerusalem, as a bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. Now, do you see? There's a close connection between the bride and the new Jerusalem. In this text, they're so closely aligned that one stands for the other. To speak of the new Jerusalem is to speak of the church. And so I believe that makes the New Jerusalem a city of the church. The church will have permanent residence in the city. But there are some who don't live in that city. They're going to be in heaven, but they don't live in the city. You might say, well, who are they? Who, who are these people that don't live in the New Jerusalem, but they're still in heaven? Well, we find in the text a little bit later on, the nations go in and out. That's told us in uh, verses 24 to 26. So the city is primarily the home of the bride. So we're going to look and see who, who are the people that go in and out of the city, but they're not a part of the bride. They're saved. They're, they get to go to the New Jerusalem, but they don't live there. Well, in consideration is a comment made by John the Baptist when he neared the end of his ministry. In John 3, verses 29 and 30, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. That's Jesus, right? He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John said he was a friend of the bridegroom. The bridegroom, again, is Jesus. Now, we see there that John did not identify himself as the bride. He's not in the church. Why is that? Because John is the last Old Testament prophet. He's not a part of the church. And so his ministry decreased, and then Christ formed his church with the apostles. Now, we put that information together, and it seems that it is the bride that lives in the New Jerusalem, and it is the friends of the bridegroom that go in and out. These will be people that are saved prior to the formation of the church. They will have access to the city of, of, of God, the New Jerusalem, but they, but they live in a different place. That's why we have a new earth. They're people who live on the new earth. The gates of the city are never closed, and so they have access to go in and out of the New Jerusalem, but they don't live there. This is a special city provided for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who are these friends? They're John the Baptist. They're the Old Testament prophets. And they're anybody who believes in Jesus, but is not a part of the church. Now don't get confused about this, folks. If you're saved, you're not automatically a part of the Lord's church. You're looking at the Lord's church. It takes membership to be in the Lord's church. So we have many Christians, people out there, that are not part of the bride of Christ. They'll get to go in and out of the city, but they don't live there. You see, the church, uh, the, the New Jerusalem, that is the exalted position, the favored 
position. The church is the pillar, the favored position in God's heavenly kingdom. Now, does this mean that others are slighted? Do the prophets of the Old Testament feel unappreciated for all they did? Now, you see, that's part of the untold mysteries of heaven. In that day, how we think, what we do, what we see is all according to the mind of Christ. We'll think perfectly as He does. That's perfect knowledge and understanding. So everybody in heaven is happy and they're blessed to their fullest capacity. And what I'm telling you, as a member of the Lord's church, you have greater capacity to enjoy heaven. Now another point to make, Jesus said to Philadelphia, I will give you a new name. Uh, Philadelphians would recognize why Jesus said that. As I told you last week, at one time, Philadelphia had its name changed. It was called Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar. So they were acquainted with name changes. Well, where then will these names that the Lord gives be written? I have a suggestion for that, and I'm not going to make this infallible doctrine because I can't. But I would suggest that the names of people in the Lord's church will be written on pillars throughout the New Jerusalem. This is why we have the name, and this is why we have the pillars mentioned, because their names will be written in those pillars. Now you say, where do you get such an idea? Why would you think this? Well, because I know that there are other places relating to this city that says names are written, are memorialized in certain places. Now, look at Revelation 21.12. Again, this is what we read earlier. This city has a wall great and high and had twelve gates and at the gates twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. So on the gates of the city are names written, twelve tribes of Israel, and those names are there because Israel is the nation through which Jesus came. So you can't get into this city without going through Israel. You must go through Israel. Those names are written on the gates to symbolize that. Now notice also in verse number 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of twelve apostles of the Lamb. So there are these beautiful foundation stones of the walls, and in each of them there is the name of an apostle. There are twelve layers, and there are twelve names. And what do the Scriptures say about the foundation of the church? In Ephesians 2, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Is that more proof for us that the New Jerusalem is the city of the church? The foundation of the church is the names of the apostles. That's the church, the beginning of the church, the foundation of it. So this city is built for the church. And so does Christ intend to tell us that the names of His church are going to be inscribed, the parts of His church are going to be inscribed in the pillars throughout this vast, glorious city of the New Jerusalem? That's not an uncommon thing. Inscribing names is not unusual. Ancient civilizations put names in the gates of their cities. It was common to inscribe the names. Now, we've just read about the names of the tribes of Israel. Israel was commanded to do the same. 
The, the high priest on his breastplate were twelve stones, and in them was inscribed the name of one of the tribes, each one of the tribes of Israel. On his shoulders were two stones that were inscribed, six on one side, six on the other, the names of the children of Israel. Sometimes churches do this. At my sister's church in Kentucky, the stained glass windows had the names of members who were there when that church was built. Our old-time members here in Berean Baptist, you may remember the old, ugly, red pews that we used to have. And some of them had this little brass plaque on it. Do you remember that? And they would have somebody's name on it. And I think... I was told that those names were put there because that person contributed to buy that particular pew. Now, I'm glad that those pews were not permanent. They're gone now, and so are the names. But the Lord still remembers the names, even though we don't. He still remembers those names. Now, apparently, the Lord has a great memory. Truly, He doesn't forget the labor of love. And if you're faithful to Him, you can claim these promises. These are promises made to the church at Philadelphia. But don't let that deter you because we're learning here that this is representative of churches in all ages. So the promises that are made to them are promises made to us as faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we want to be as Berean Baptist Church? We want to, we want to be historical and doctrinal, and faithfully still the Lord's church. Now, I'm too near to being out of time to get much part, much into the next part of the letter. I've spent a good deal of time these few weeks talking about Philadelphia because I love to speak of the blessedness of the Lord's church. There is no greater privilege than to be a member of the Lord's church. And I know that there are some people who don't think that's important. And they say, oh, I'm a Christian, but they can take or leave the church. That's not biblical, and that's not apostolic. That is not historic, and it's not faithful. It's the same as saying that Christ would as well abandon His church as to love her. And to this we would say, there is no commendation for that opinion. That is foreign to the New Testament. And we could also say that is heretical. That is an opinion so forcefully rebuked by Christ that he would put the person who says that in the next part of the letter. Where he says, you are a liar. You say you love me, but you don't love my church. You are a liar. Now I've said, uh, I've nearly exhausted time for today, but I want to warn you as the Lord does. There's much good in this letter. Commendations abound in the letter. We're not through. There are other marvelous truths to be told. For instance, what is the purpose of the open door? And, and what does it mean for the future of the church when he says, I will keep them from the hour of temptation? I want to talk about those things, and we will. That perhaps is the most important part of these messages, at least for the work of the church today. But before we get there, we have to go through verse number 9. While there are wonderful promises for the faithful church, there are also woeful promises for those that oppose her. The bad parts of this letter are not because of what the church did. He doesn't say anything bad about the church at all for anything they did, but the bad parts are for those who make life difficult for the Lord's people. 
He doesn't forget them either. As much as faithfulness has its reward, so harmfulness has its reward. So we'll start part three of the outline next time. What happens to the world that troubles us? And it turns out their trouble turns into our glory. Haven't you heard? Do you know this? All things work together for good to them who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. It's going to turn out for our good. The worst that the world could ever do to us will turn out to our good. We're the called according to His purpose. Friends, that's a great promise for God's people. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this, this first Sunday of the new year that we have the opportunity to have a text like this where it speaks of the blessedness of your church, the one that follows you, the one that's faithful. And this is the way that we want to start out this new year, honoring you, serving you, glorifying you as a faithful church. Lord, help us to know what high esteem how much you love your church. You gave yourself for it. How could we ignore the blessedness of being a part of the church? And we'll see it again tonight as we come together as the church to observe the communion, to take part of the Lord's body, His flesh and His blood and the elements, uh, the picture of the elements that we have tonight. And there we see again the blessedness of the church to have that privilege. Lord, Help us to stand strong in this hour, in this day, when there, there's so much wickedness around us, when every, everything in our community seems is going against you and speaks against you, and Lord, there's no favor for Christians. We know that you favor us, and that's all that really counts. All things work together for our good. We believe that. Lord, speak to your people today. Draw us closer to you as a church body. And Lord, we pray for anybody who doesn't understand these things about how important that the church is, that they would see we've taken the Word of God and we've delineated this. We've, we've picked it out and shown what the church means. And Lord, the new Jerusalem is proof of how much you love us. Not just your death, but what you promised to give us because you died for us. Thank you, Lord, for that. And we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org